0: This is WIOA, and you're listening to What is Opera Anyway, the podcast. I'm Josh Lau. Hello. I'm Josh Lau, and I have a confession. I don't know a lot about opera. The only operas I know of are the ones I've worked on as a stage manager. This podcast is part of an educational program for the nonprofit organization aptly called What is Opera Anyway? Every other week, I will be learning about anything and everything opera-related, and you're welcome to listen and learn along with me. My hope is to learn more about opera and to get closer to answering that essential question, what is opera anyway? My final guest of the season is Alexander McCargar. You may remember Alex from earlier in the season when he talked to me about the Bibiana family and how they influenced operatic stage design. That was more of a history lesson dating back to the Baroque era of the 1600s to the 1700s, but today, Alex is here to talk about reinterpreting traditional stage design.
1: Yeah, so hi, my name is Alex McCarger and I'm a stage designer. So um, I primarily work
0: to design sets for operas. And what got you into stage design in the first place? Yeah, um, so I, I basically
1: realized that opera was this kind of intersection, well, stage design was this intersection of all of my interests. Um, I studied fine arts and architecture originally, um, and I really have a, a passion for classical music. And um, eventually, that grew into a passion for opera um, musically. So I love the music, but um, besides playing the violin as a, a you know a kid in elementary school, um, I don't have too much musical musical experience. Um, so besides just loving it, so it was kind of that. And then I also studied um, art history for a while. And so set design is kind of this this merging of you know people that that love music mm-hmm. but that really love have an understanding of you know art history and and architectural history um but you also have to be a bit of an architect to design for the stage um you're essentially designing spaces mm-hmm. um so it was all these things that kind of came together and overlapped and i realized um that 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 was stage design
0: and um what got you interested in architecture and um sort of the fine arts in the first place Were you exposed to those things?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, You know, my parents were always very encouraging um, growing up. I loved to draw and build things. You know, I was a huge Lego kid. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. So I was always sort of creating things and uh, two-dimensionally and three-dimensionally. And then eventually um, in high school, that kind of came together through architecture. Um, You know, there's a lot of drawing in architecture and sketching, you know, getting your ideas out and then building models and things. So I love to do all of that. So that's pretty much where that that kind of came in. And I, I did my undergrad at, at RISD, Rhode Island School of Design. So the architecture program mm-hmm. is also very, um, you know, very hands-on and very sort of rooted in, in like a fine arts understanding and practice.
0: Yeah. I think, I think RISD is well-known in, in that area. Um, what was your experience with um, theater or opera or just like the stage and sort of, um, you know, going to, uh, an event in, in a theater and, you know, seeing a stage. And do you have any early memories of that?
1: Um, I do. So, um, I was very fortunate that, um, I think it was early high school or middle school. My mom, um, got, uh, you know, like sort of a season, it was, I think three operas, like a season, um, past or season tickets to, mm-hmm. um, the Boston Lyric Opera. Um, and so I remember some of their productions, this must've been, you know, I don't know, twenty years ago or something. At this point, <laughs> um, but I remember some of the sort of staging, staging of those those productions. But um, you know, growing up in high school, I was a little bit involved with um, you know the the music theater group and sort of and theater stuff there. But I wasn't like really an official member on stage too much. Um, I sort of assisted or helped with some of the productions, um, but I was never on stage myself um, except for one little one little one line solo. <laughs> um, <laughs> Did you help build the sets? Um not not really. I I didn't, I was always involved more sort of in the art club um and staying after school to you know paint and everything. And sort of Mm. I mostly spent my time there. So I wouldn't I actually didn't really come into theater or opera too early, um, besides these sort of smaller experiences. It was really um when I started working as an architect, um, I started going to the opera every night in this was actually in Zurich, Switzerland. I had an internship there. And um, I, you know i was able to get student tickets to the opera so it was 10, 10 euros i think or they have the, they have the swiss francs so it was <laughs> it was 10 swiss francs and um, basically i started going and it came into this thing where i was going pretty much you know every other night and then pretty much every night and at this point it was almost like every every opera was like a new experience for me um, you know a new story and a new way of of seeing it
0: um, so you went overseas to zurich to study architecture <laughs> And then just because you were, I guess, sort of in this culture where people would go to the opera, you sort of tagged yeah, along exactly, too. Yeah, exactly, exactly.
1: It was, um, I, you know, the, the friends that I made and some other other people I met, um, you know, were involved in the opera. I actually met a prompter at the opera who um, was the who got me my first sort of free ticket, and that's that's really what started it. Um, What's a prompter? Uh, the prompter? Oh, sorry. The prompter is um, basically, you know, how sometimes when you when you look at the stage, there's a little tiny box there right at the front of the stage. Um, it's usually disguised by some sort of um, piece of the set. Like I've seen productions where it might be like a rock or a clump of a clump of little <laughs> tiny bushes or something. Um, but basically there's a person in there and he or she is um, sort of like an additional director or conductor. And helps the singers make sure they're they're right on um, you know right on time. So there's actually there's oh, actually wow. the conductor who's standing in the orchestra conducting the orchestra, but also facing the stage and sort of helping the singers. But the prompter will also help to point you know to point at the singers or, or sort of make motions when they're supposed to to come on to make sure that they're they're on time.
0: Would they also be able to
1: whisper like
0: this is your next word? Um, probably.
1: I don't. I mean, yeah. I think if they were to whisper up there. Or even even like a little <laughs> shout, it probably wouldn't be heard by the audience. So <laughs> But yeah, it's so that's really it's another cool. position within within the sort of the whole production of an opera that people don't even realize is there.
0: Yeah. And and how lucky we are today to talk about stage design. And you know, that's probably something maybe a stage designer wants to see or maybe wants to hide behind a bush <laughs> or a rock. Yeah. Yeah. So um we're talking today about um, you, this this title that that you've given us, Bohème without the Stave, stovepipe, mm-hmm. and rethinking stage mm-hmm. design. Um, if it isn't clear to our listeners, what what do you mean by what do you mean by that? First of all, Bohème is an opera. I think some of us may know mm-hmm. that. But what about Laboem without the stovepipe?
1: Yeah, Pipe? yeah. So. Um, the title basically comes from this idea of um, these sort of traditional elements that um, we see in, in certain operas. And I think La OM is is so iconic and it's one of the most commonly produced operas you know, all over the world. Um, and so it was one of the ones that when I started seeing operas at first, I, I saw a few times and I was always seeing these same. Elements on stage. So, I mean, the opera opens in a um, basically like an attic apartment of these really poor Parisian bohemians. And they're, you know, they're, they're starving artists. Um, and within their apartment, there's always sort of like a little window that looks out over Paris. You know, there's these sort of crooked, um, you know, uh, uh, um, beams holding up the roof. And there's usually, or there are pretty much always, is like a little, a little wooden stove where they can, you know, keep, that's the only way of keeping the apartment warm. And the stovepipe I've seen in a lot hmm. of productions always just kind of comes up and goes across the ceiling and then kind of like out the roof. Um, and so what I mean by La Buen without the stovepipe is um, sort of asking this question, you know, how is it possible to put on these operas or to rethink these operas um, without necessarily using these visual elements that are, you know, always recycled over and over again? Um, you know, as a stage designer, I think, you know, while it can be, you know fun to um to sort of just design what the audience might expect expect to see over and over again i think it's it's always an interesting and exciting challenge to kind of to maybe set an opera in a new place where the audience might not expect it um or to sort of rethink some of these traditional
0: elements that we keep seeing on stage over and over again well, why do we even have these traditional elements like what makes them traditional like is it um a huge part of the storytelling? Um is it integral to the plot?
1: Yeah, um there are usually I mean usually there are there are mentions um in the libretto or the, the words of the opera that um that point out these certain things. So I think in Love O M they do at one point um mention like a little stove where they they basically they burn one of their, um, one of the other artists write it. he's a writer, and they burn one of his writings to try to keep warm. So there are, there are mentions <laughs> of, um, of these things in the script, or the, the libretto. Um, but usually they're just little, little bits, um, or little mentions. Oftentimes, though, the opera will have um, stage directions. So for example, um, I don't have the actual uh, score or, or libretto of La Boheme right next to me right now, but it says something, you know, in the beginning, like a small Parisian apartment, um, and usually has descript- visual descriptions um, of these, of mm-hmm. these elements. Um, but because those um, stage directions or those sort of descriptions are not necessarily sung, the audience doesn't hear them. So that's sort of part of my, um, part of my mm-hmm. interest in like, oh, is it possible to maybe to rethink them?
0: And so, as a stage designer, do you start with um, those sort of stage directions? I think those are those italics, <laughs> exactly. like small little things in the on the top of the page um, that, set, that says basically, you know, it's sent <laughs> here. Um, are you talking about? I mean, to go back to what I was saying earlier, uh, asking earlier is, do you start with what's given there? Yeah, yeah. No, I. Or do you completely like just? white it out and be like no I don't want to read that I want to come in with a fresh mind and you know what do they really need on stage
1: Um, I mean with something like La Boheme just the fact that it's shown so often and as a designer you often see versions you know I've definitely I've seen some of these so I it's it's impossible to not have these visual images in my head already but yeah no um, when I'm approached or you know looking at an opera um, I, I generally like to see what's expected. Cause I think, I mean, if you're gonna reinvent something, you really have to know what it is first. Um, so I do, I do think it's important not to just ignore those those instructions or those stage directions um, or descriptions outright. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think I've definitely seen some productions of, of things where it's like, you kind of get this idea of, oh, you know, the director must have had, must not have read those at all. And, <laughs> or, or just- <laughs> It's like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, I think it's, it's important to, um, to definitely read them and, and know that they're there and, and try to understand them. Um, you know, it's like, you know, if we, if we break rules, especially with an art, you know, it's it's good to know what, what the rules are at first. What the rules
0: are. I've heard that before. So I've actually, um. La Boheme is actually one of the very few operas that I know. <laughs> um, and that's my gateway into that was this uh, musical mm-hmm. Rent. Um, and uh, that's based on mm-hmm. this opera. Um, and in that, they don't, I don't think they have a stove pipe, but instead they use like trash cans or barrels um, to sort of burn things. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's sort of readapting or rethinking this idea, but that's sort of taking place in the 20th century. I think rent was 1996. Yeah. Um, and Boheme was 1896, a, like a hundred yeah. years yeah. later. So um, when you, when you rethink a stage design, are you, are you setting it in a different location, like a different country or city or in a different
1: time period? Yeah. Um, it can be, it can be one or the other or, or both. Um you know, They're definitely, I think, I think Rent is a, is a great example for um, sort of like updating or rethinking La Boheme. Um, I mean, obviously it's different, different music, and, but you know, the basic, the basic idea, <laughs> yeah. um, but no, I've- Again, it's like knowing what the rules exactly, are before yeah, you break yeah. them. Um, no, and, and on that note too, I definitely, I've seen, um, you know, images and, and, and productions of La Boheme where they actually do just simply set it in modern times. Um, you know, there's, there's been versions where it's just sort of modern Paris in our own time. Um, and you do that usually through, um, you know, obviously the, the, um, the apartment might not be an actual 19th century apartment. It would be like a, you know, a a sort of crappy, you know, hipster hangout or something. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. and then obviously the costumes are very important too, to, so that people understand, you know, what the time period is and where it's set. Um. But yeah, no, I think, I mean, Rent, yeah, Rent is a great, great example.
0: Have you seen um, uh, this, this particular opera that we're talking mm-hmm. about, Bohem? Have you seen it without a stovepipe? <laughs> have you seen it set Yeah, yeah,
1: definitely. Um, you know, as I mentioned, I've seen sort of modern productions or, you know, like Rent, where they might use something like a, a trash can instead. Um, but there was an amazing production um, at the Paris Opera, I think it was in 2017, Um, by the director klaus Gut, and um he's he's done a lot of different productions of various operas where he sort of he sets them in a different time or place or rethinks them um but this version of la bohème was actually pretty much it was set in outer space um and then sort of a landing on like a a, um, far off planet
0: yeah what (laughs) this is we we always sort of i i come from the background of um, theater and we we talk about shakes you know we always joke like oh we do shakespeare all the time let's yeah, set yeah, it on the yeah, moon no. and now you're talking about somebody actually set bohem like in, much, in yeah, outer yeah. space so
1: um so the, the whole premise um or what i've what i've gained from the director and seeing it um it, is um basically that there's this kind of idea of hopelessness from the very start and the way that love bohem starts you know they're in this kind of awful apartment or, you know, poor apartment and they're starving artists, but there's kind of, it's a little bit fun. They joke around a lot. Um, and the director wanted to try to get this idea of just complete hopelessness across from the beginning. Um, so the idea is that they've, they've left earth, I guess, because there's nothing left or, you know, the earth has been destroyed or, or you know, Paris, mm. the Paris no longer exists. Um, but they're basically floating in space, you know, low on oxygen, it's freezing. Um, and we learned some of this. So the, the director actually added in this idea that um, one of the main characters, Rodolfo, is keeping like a journal or a diary. And so we actually see mm-hmm. we see projected um, sort of up on the stage what he's writing and there's little bits here and there. He'll say like, oh, day 120, we're stuck in outer space or something. So it kind of it sets that up for the audience a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. but. But yeah, so this idea of hopelessness and that they're essentially stuck floating in space and they start because they're freezing and low on oxygen and, um, you know, basically close to death already at the beginning, um, they start to hallucinate. And these hallucinations are essentially the opera, like, you know, what we know is Love O.M. Um, So basically... You know, in, in act two, they go to this sort of big, you know, Parisian cafe and there's, you know, children running around and, and a singer. And, you know, it's, it's like it's very sort of fun and, and lively. And that mm-hmm. sort of essentially takes place like on this spaceship. Um, they sort of, you know, tables are sort of brought in quickly and and children, you know, run through and they're sort of in, you know, a closer to period close um, of the actual opera um, or the actual time that it's set. Um so we're so we're made to understand that this is all sort of these like hallucinatory memories um of what life used to be like
0: so these aren't no no yeah, sorry yeah. if I can stop you right there so these aren't these are hallucinations they're not flashbacks of like oh remember that time when we were back on earth and we had this moment it's actually happening in this sort of on the spacecraft um, or the shuttle from my
1: understanding they're um they're meant to be, they're hallucinating, but they're kind of, it's, it's basically both um, memories and hallucinations. So they're kind of, as they start to hallucinate, they, they remember and get these images from their past. Um, hmm. So, yeah, so the whole, the whole thing is really um, told through this, this lens.
0: And so when you, when you think about resetting, re staging or resetting uh an opera do you do you set out thinking um okay so here's a stovepipe, for example we're gonna replace that with um um uh, an escape pod on a spaceship like do you do you hard and fast you know like do substitutes and swaps or do you like look at sort of this yeah. big picture Um,
1: usually it'll be, um, a a bigger picture. So for example, in this Love O.M., um, I believe it sort of started, I mean, I wasn't, I I haven't met the director myself or talked to him directly, but I believe it started with this idea of hopelessness, um, that he wanted to express. And then I, and it's mostly through sort of, you know, brainstorming and thinking about possibilities. Um, I assume, you know, or if I had done it, like I, I might've, you know, listed all these possibilities, like, oh, it could be, you know moder- what if it was modern paris what if it were you know out in the woods what if it were in ancient times but you know you can kind of think about these different scenarios and see what might start to work with your your overarching ideas um and then those smaller visual elements like the stove pipe um you might see you might start to think once you once you sort of um you know uh, distill an idea Um, You might start to think, okay, what, you know, what, what visual elements can be replaced with what other visual elements and have the opera still work. Um, But what I like to do too, is to look in, just go directly to the libretto, the words, um, and look for, and read it and look for things that, that would work in different, different um, times or places. So for example, um, there's a part in the beginning of La Boheme where they're, they're in this apartment without light because the candles have gone out. And um, there's this mention, mm-hmm. I believe of, um, of Mimi, the main um, female protagonist, basically bathed in moonlight, and that's like the only light. And so if you think of setting this opera on the moon floating in space, or, in, you know, setting in a planet or something, um, this line, oh, you know, oh, she's bathed in moonlight. You know, that even has a mm-hmm. stronger meaning, perhaps than the, in the original. Um, so I kind right. of look for these little hints and clues. Um, that can lead me to other ideas when I'm looking through the libretto. Wow,
0: that's really cool. How did the audience react to seeing this opera um, totally set in a different? Yeah, way, yeah. I mean, so way? I have to
1: admit, I, I've I've watched the um, I've watched it. There's a great um, There's a great wonderful recording of it on Medici TV. I don't work for them. <laughs> um, if people want to try to look it up, but. Um, so I didn't, I wasn't in the audience to hear the actual applause, but I've read a bunch of reviews online and, I mean, some of them are scathing, you know, they think, how could you do this to La Boheme? it's beloved, you know, everyone loves Paris in the 19th century. Um, but other people really, really think it's, it's good to, to try to look at how we can reinterpret these things. Um, and, and we're really positive um, you know, and then some, some people in the middle said, you know, it was a good try. They sort of appreciate the attempts, but not, every, not everything worked. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I found I, I was in um, sort of, a, it's a, like a fun side note, but I, I was in a production, in the audience for a production Don Giovanni in Zurich that um, had really intense booing and really intense cheering at the end. And it was almost, I mean, it was almost scary to oh, wow. see, you know, how passionate some of these people were about it. So I assume in Paris, it might have been similar.
0: At the time when it was first premiered, what was different about that production that <laughs> elicited booze um, or cheers? Was,
1: it was really a sort of um, mashup of places. So, um, you know, Don Giovanni takes place in, I think it's eighteenth-century Naples or something. It says specifically in the in the libretto. But um, this production of it was sort of really a, a weird mix-up. It was like a mega church, um, almost like. In the southern US or something. And then and then it kind of switched, mm-hmm. and, and they were in a scene with uh, like a Turkish bathhouse, but the people had sort of Amish costumes. Um, so it was really almost like this sort of absurdist approach. I mean, just I don't I don't think it wasn't it wasn't essentially set in like a specific another time and place too specifically. It was kind of a, just this weird mashup of places. Um, so I think that's what really threw people off. So um, I mean, I thought it was interesting what they were trying to do. You know, I think the part about religion really came out, setting it in, setting it in this mega megachurch. Um, but it was um, mm-hmm. definitely, I think, sort of it, it led to more more um, potential for interesting understandings, but it also was kind of um, confusing, too. So I think that's, that's what led people
0: to mm. do it. Yeah, that's 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 a sort of hard line to ride of yeah, audience yeah. expectation of you come in with it thinking you're going to get this yeah. but you the curtain comes up and you see something completely different and how do you how do you hold yeah, or captivate exactly. your audience um, through that? So do you think you know setting these um operas do you think that's part of the stage designer's job or the director's job or both? or other people who are involved like maybe the singers like who who gets a say in where
1: yeah. where we yeah, set um these stories I mean it's it's pretty much generally always the director who you know comes in with the sort of concept to do the opera um and but really it has to be everyone on board including the singers or it won't be convincing you know i mean if you for example, in this Labo OM, if the singers were not into the idea and they looked sort of, you know, apathetic or frustrated the whole time, it just wouldn't work. <laughs> um, so it really, it really takes everyone to be on board. Mm-hmm. But it, it, the idea generally starts with the director. Um, and then it's up to the design team. So not only the stage designer, but the costume designer, the lighting designer, um, the projection designer, um, you know, everyone involved with how the opera visually looks um to make that idea come to fruition so for example the director might have come and said okay you know i want this to be set on a spaceship um and then you know the the designers then have to go and do research and say well you know what does a space i mean we all have an idea of maybe what a spacesuit looks like in our minds but if someone said okay draw mm-hmm. one right now or build one um you know it takes a lot of (laughs) of research and time investigating what those things look like um you know for example even if you were just to set la bohème you know where it says in the libretto in in 19th century paris um in like you know a rooftop apartment and a little a cafe um you know you might the designer's costume and set and everyone might look through um you know photographs from the time they might go to museums and look at um clothing from the time um you know, I know there are places like the Met, the Metropolitan Museum in New York that has a huge, um, like, fashion and costume department. So people can actually go there and look <laughs> at clothing from different time periods. Um, so for costume designers, that's really amazing. Um, but, yeah, it just takes a lot of research and gathering. Um, and then, of course, you know, there's a whole team of people that will actually build the set. So it's, um, it's not just, you know, the designer. Like, I wouldn't go and, and build it all myself. I would essentially um, go sort of um give <laughs> give drawings and my ideas to a team of um uh you know manufacturers like construction workers essentially that will that will put the whole thing together um and and technicians really and engineers
0: um how do you how do you how do you work with other designers like you're, you're a set designer how do you work with costume designers or what were some projection. other designers you mentioned lighting yeah. projection um
1: well there are lots of I mean generally know we there are meetings at the beginning where the director sort of announces his or her idea and we and we all sort of discuss it as a group um but then with the other designers there are many many you know we have to make sure we're all on the same page in terms of you know okay this is this place and time um and then there are things such as you know like the colors of the set like if for example if i if i painted a set um or i wanted a set painted entirely blue the lighting designer might have Mm -hmm. trouble, um, you know, lighting parts of the set if there were moments when they didn't want it to be so blue because, you know, the light would kind of bounce around a lot. Um, and, and simultaneously, you know, if if the costume designer wanted, um, you know, for example, someone in like a white dress, the light would reflect off the blue walls and essentially make that dress look blue on stage. (laughs) Um, so there's a lot of sort of take and, and sort of working together. Um, that the different designers have to do to make sure that the whole idea is very cohesive um you know for example if 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 the costume designer and the set designer maybe don't quite agree on something the costumes might feel a little bit like they're in a different world than the set you know even though maybe the director's idea was still kind of overarching or you know um, had a clear idea um so it really Mm -hmm. takes a lot of a lot of teamwork and, and close work um you know especially from the early stages thinking about um you know color and texture um, and how that really all works together on stage
0: mm-hmm. yeah how awful would it be if if the the whole background of the set was blue and here comes your your main character in a blue dress or blue suit yeah and exactly they just know that like you're exactly that. <laughs> that's that's also a very, a very common problem <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> So after, after you sort of design or you, you sketch out your ideas, how, how does that come into fruition? How do you go from, I'm guessing you, you draw this on a piece of paper, or maybe nowadays mm-hmm. we can do things on computers. Um, how do you get that from that sort of the process to actually making it in real life? And is there a, a point where you, know, you thought you could build this, I mean, to use a costume designer's approach to it you thought you could build this base suit like this but in reality it's it doesn't fit together like that or in the set designers world you know you wanted to build this platform or this bridge like that but in reality it's too light and if somebody steps on it it's going to fall apart
1: yeah so usually um well not usually but always the set designer works um similarly to an architect. So, you know, an architect, um, they have an idea and they make a series of drawings um, on the computer, you know, um, you know, very calculated engineered drawings that they will then give to the, the people who will build the building and, and again to an engineer um, to make sure it'll stand up. And that's, that's pretty much the same thing that happens um, in the theater. So the set designer will, um, you know, have a lot of sketched ideas, you know, doodles, um, Research images, and then they'll produce a set of of drafted drawings on the computer, um, and then give those to the workshop, which will then build the set. Um, but then it, it often involves many many meetings back and forth. Um, and just as you mentioned, some of those issues come up, like oh, you've you've drawn this to be a wall that's uh, you know two inches thick, but we can't make that stand up thirty feet high or something. <laughs> um, so is it okay if it's six inches <laughs> thick? And then the designer will either say, you know. Definitely, yes, or can we work together to try to make a, a, um, a solution that'll that'll satisfy both of us um, but yeah, there are many, many um, issues like that that issues like that that come up through the process where the set designer really wants something um, and it's either you know impossible to build the way they've imagined it or drawn it, even though you know the drafted drawings on the computer you know even if you build a 3 d model on the computer, it doesn't have any um, gravity (laughs) so that's something that that's sort of uh right hello like (laughs) in your face sometimes
0: exactly here's real world real world Um, problems is there is there anything off limits for a stage designer like oh that's that's my area don't don't touch that like you why do you get to say that um, the wall is blue uh
1: well in terms of maybe off limits i would say like the director might have You know, directors oftentimes have some visual idea of what they what they want or they're looking for. Um, So, you know, the director might come in and say, I I, like I hate blue, (laughs) you know, like even even though, you know, maybe it's a sad (laughs) scene and we wanted this room to be painted blue. The director might say, you know, I just I hate blue. So please, anything but blue. Um, You know, there are definitely moments moments like that. Um, Mm. But. Yeah, it really, um, it really, it really depends. Um, There's not I mean, there's certain things like working with, you know, water on stage or fire on stage, that aren't usually completely um, impossible, but take a lot of um, negotiating and practice. And, you know, I mean, there Exactly. Right, you don't again. want to get a costume exactly, with exactly, or catch exactly. fire. Has you know, obviously, every theater and every show or production has a different budget. Um, so it really, you know, for example, if you're working on a very small production somewhere, um, they might say right off the bat, you know, we don't have money to to do fire <laughs> um, <laughs> or to to build a whole right. room. They might say, you know, we, we can only have certain smaller elements. So. In terms of what's um, possible or impossible um, right from the start, it really depends on the production and the theater.
0: Is there a difference between stage designer and a production designer? I've sort of seen both um, used interchangeably. I mean,
1: generally a production designer is um, the term used for someone who works on film and and movies. so sort of designing any, you know, the, basically the stage design for, for, for film. Um, and that, that usually takes a lot more um, detail because the sets do, because when you're filming up close, obviously you're getting like close-ups, Whereas in the theater, even if you're sitting in the front row, you're still pretty far away. So there are things that you can kind of fake or get away with in how you design the set or even, you know, paint the set. Um, whereas in film, things can be, um, much more detail focused but yeah production designers generally um someone who works on film or or um, you know movies
0: oh okay um I want to go back to you were talking about architecture um and that 's sort of your background and you you made your way into opera stage design that way um, what what was when was the moment that you intersected that you know you're watching this opera on a stage and you're like hey wait a minute if they had built this thing like that or if it looked like this maybe i should do that like how did you have that sort of aha moment or um this realization that as a student studying architecture that actually you wanted to do Um, stage design it was
1: it was definitely definitely like a sort of period of time when I, when I started to see different operas. And I think when I started to compare them and think about the stage designs, um, I I realized that I would definitely have done things differently. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's pretty much how I started to, to get into it, um, and think like, oh, I could have, I would have designed this differently. Um, and I think, I think also with the, you know, the music, um, if I started to, you know, see a production in this sort of period that I'm referencing um, when I was working as an architect, um, if I saw a production that I, I really thought that it, it wasn't working in terms of the design, you know, I, I might sort of sit back or listen to the music and then start to get other visual images in my head and then thought, well, you know, why couldn't I build those images <laughs> myself? You know, why couldn't I be a designer and and implement that um, and design it? But um, in terms of like one specific production or so, I mean, I remember seeing um, a, an opera in Zurich, um, Der Stadt die Blinden, the, the City of the Blind, I think it's called. Um, and there was this use of, of projections that, um, so there was a set that had these sort of, it was so long ago, I'm trying to remember the images. I mean, there's there um, a set that had sort of um, panels on the walls that were sort of like overlapping or in different positions. And then um, I didn't even realize it, but there was like, projections, so sort of almost like video, you know, shining on the stage. Um, but it was just basically over these these sort of squares and rectangles. And at certain moments, that started to move. And this feeling of disorientation was just, you know, incredible and very bizarre. Um, so in terms of a specific moment, that, that definitely really excited me. Um, but yeah, it was definitely this sort of this, this period of going to the opera and you know, having, um, you know, working in sort of an office environment and coming from more of a sort of like studio arts, artistic, you know, background, um, I really wanted to sort of to get get back into that more like hands-on world. Um, and then it, it wasn't until later that I went back mm-hmm. um, to school and did my master's in stage design, sort of years after that.
0: Architecture and, and after yeah, you've yeah, learned exactly. Your architecture ways. <laughs> Have you seen other operas set in drastic, um, departures from a sort of traditional Mm -hmm. design? Yeah, definitely. Um,
1: I mean, there's, there's one, one that really stands out, um, or kind of definitely a few that stand out, but one that really stands out that comes to mind. Um, there was a production of Cosi Fan Tutte, which is an opera by Mozart. Um, that took place in the, the Aix-en-Provence festival, I think in 2016 or so. Um, and so Cosi Fantuta is this opera, I should probably explain just a little bit of the plot just really quickly. Um, it's, it's oftentimes the title isn't mm-hmm. translated because it's hard to translate, but it, it generally translates to something like women are like that, which okay, it's, you know, very sexist in the title. Um, but it's an 18th century opera from, you know, Mozart, Mozart's time. I mean, he wrote it, and um, it's basically this sort of um, opera buffa or the sort of comedic uh, comic opera where there are these two um, two guys, Ferrando and Guglielmo, and they they sort of they say that their fiancés will always be faithful you know, for all eternity. And their older friend, Don Alfonso, um, sort of doubts that and says, no, it's not true. Um, you know, all women are fickle, or, you know, he says some, uh, again, sexist lines. Um, And they basically make a bet and say and try to see if their fiancés will stay, um, will stay faithful. So the two guys leave, Um, they say that they're getting called to the military, and they go off to do their military duty. And they essentially come back in disguise and try to seduce each other's fiancés, like the opposite one. Um, And it basically like it it starts to work at first um, with one of the pairs, the other ones, they're not quite on board. Um, But then basically they both get on board and they kind of now have this like reverse, you know, relationship or reversed, you know, little, little um, flirtations. And the two, you know, they're not sure, you know, maybe I think I think at one point they say like, oh, maybe your husbands or your your fiancés will die in battle. And they kind of, you know, try to persuade the girls that they should marry them. Um, these two guys, you know, they're, they're actual lovers who are in disguise. Um, and so they eventually, they're about to have a wedding ceremony where they're both going to get married to the opposite's lover, um, when they hear military trumpets and essentially their two original fiancés are coming back. Um, and what happens is the two, the two fiancés who are in disguise go off stage quickly, take off their disguises and come back as the soldier, as their lovers from the beginning again, um, and then they see the marriage contracts, the two guys. They pretend to be really upset, but then they essentially it's revealed that the whole thing was a joke, and they kind of laugh it off and say, "Oh, haha!" Like life has good times and bad, and you know, and, you know, everyone is you know uh, <laughs> seduced by someone else at some point, and blah blah blah, and you know, it's okay. We're all getting married, and so um, it's a very funny comic opera. Um, that's sort of the tone, and you know, some, some directors have said it just simply, you know, um, done it in 18th century clothes. Um, I think it says in the libretto that it's set in Naples in the 18th century, but there's nothing really specific to Naples, I think, um, nothing very, very specific that, that um, is drawn out in the course of the opera. Um, So I've seen many productions where it's just like, you know, set in modern clothes, Um, you know, I mean, even, even, you know, pretending that they're, um, you know, teenagers on, um, you know, on a um, you know, some of these like apps, uh, Tinder, you know, <laughs> or TikTok or something, you know, even, even, um, even looking at it from, yeah, exactly. Like, I've seen oh, trying to fool like...
0: somebody else. Yeah, exactly.
1: Like I've seen productions where they just, Cat try fishing. To, um, you know, set it in modern day clothes and and pretend that it's happening today. And, you know, that, that works too in, in many ways. Um, but this, so I'm coming back around to this production in Aix-en-Provence um, where the director looked looked at the opera as, you know, it's in Italian, written by um, Mozart, but um, also Lorenzo de Ponte was an Italian who wrote the words. And um, so he looked at Italy in the 1930s and decided to set it in the um, African, um, Italian colony in Africa, um, uh, Eritrea. So basically during the time of Italian fascism. And he sort of looks at the opera through this very um, kind of, intense and and many times very, very violent lens of racism. In this description of Fantut that I'm about to get into, I mean, it's it's a production that deals a lot with um, very uh, hard, like with with violent acts and rape. Um, So it's definitely if you're if you don't want to hear that, please skip ahead. And the director, I should mention his name is Christophe um, Honoré. so he, he's, he often does also productions sort of like Klaus Guth who did the La Boheme. He does productions that are um, set in different times and places oftentimes or rethinking them. Um, but in this, in this retelling, in his retelling of it, he, so he sets it in this um, Italian colony in Africa and the opera opens actually with a record playing. And it's a song called The Gold in Africa from 1936. Um, sort of, I think it's like a sort of Calypso song and these two black women are dancing to it. And we see one of the, um, the men, I'm not sure if it's Fernando or Guillermo at this point, but one of them comes on and essentially stops the record player, um, You know, stops him from dancing, smashes the record across his leg, and then the Mozart opera, the Mozart overture begins. And so we kind of are immediately um, in this, this world of um, Mozart and Western culture kind of, invading you know this this um toxic invasion of this colony you know this this um colony um and then there Mm. are many you know very awful moments i mean during the overture then he proceeds to rape one of the black women so it's really you know as this as this this mozart music is playing so it's really uh, it's it's very difficult to watch at times um and then and then during the disguise scene, when wow. in the actual libretto, it says that the two men come back as disguised Albanians. Um, in his version, they actually come back in blackface. So it's, it's really, and the <sighs> audience, you know, at that point where we, we always, in, in typical productions, we sort of laugh with these characters. We feel for these characters and we, we kind of say, oh, you know, you're being naughty. That's, you shouldn't do that. You know, you shouldn't trick your fiancés. But in this in this version of the opera, it's it's you sort of immediately hate them and you see these white protagonists in this place that's not their own, you know, geographically and, and, and culturally um, just do these these awful things. So and then at the very, very end, one, you know, everything sort of goes awry and this joke is not laughed off. And one of the the fiancés, the women um, takes one of the guns that her her. Um, you know that one of the men has come back with from from the fake you know military um when they were going off to do their service um and essentially points that at herself and then it's sort of blackout in the end of the opera um so it's really they sort of drain all of the comedy out of it um yeah no it's, it's
0: yeah it doesn't sound funny at all um
1: <laughs> but i think i mean the the benefits of seeing these awful I hate to say benefits but you know seeing these awful things it it makes the the audience think you know about exactly what the enlightenment was and and how that had racist tendencies and and you know even just Italian fascism you know I mean these all operas have always been sort of like you know prides you know prides of Italian culture um you know so kind of and then of course looking at fascism in Italy and you know 2000
0: yeah. Right. There's all this intersection of Yeah, exactly, exactly things going on. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't know what words to use. So Alex, what other um operas have you seen mm-hmm. that have been yeah, drastically um, set? There's another really
1: wonderful production of Der Holsen Yeah, which I saw at the Met Opera in New York. Um I think it premiered in London originally, but um it was it was directed by Robert Carson, who also is another great director. I hope people listening, you know, look up these directors that I've mentioned because they've done so many incredible works that really rethink the time and place um, and and basic ideas of certain operas. Um, but in this opera, so the opera was it was written around it was written in 1911 um, by Richard Strauss, who not the Johann Strauss who did the waltzes. <laughs> um, but uh, Richard Strauss, who um, was writing around um, 1900 in sort of fin de siècle Vienna. So really um, at a time of when the Habsburg Empire was really a powerful force and there was all this arts and culture um, going on in Vienna at the time. But he chose to actually set the opera in 1740s Vienna. Um, So it's kind of, it's an opera written around, um, I think it premiered in 1911 um, but it's, it was, it's set in 17, 1740s, um, and it's, um, many productions of it really embrace this kind of 18th century feel in, visually, um, in the sets and costumes, you know, big, big kind of like, you know, Mozart dresses and, um, you know, um, palaces with, you know, beautiful floors and walls and, and, um, damask fabrics and everything, um, but uh, Robert Carson decided to actually set the opera at the time when Strauss wrote it, so around um, 1911. Um, and the reason for that was to, um, to show this kind of fading of the Habsburg empire and to parallel that with one of the main characters. So again, I should I'll do a just a really try to do a quick brief um, summary. Um, So the the opera opens in the bedroom of the Marshalin and her young lover, um, Octavian. They're sort of lounging in bed. And so she's a very important woman with a lot of money um, and she was sort of put into an arranged marriage. Um, So she has this younger lover. Um, Meanwhile, her cousin, the Baron, sort of bursts into the room um, and announces that he's engaged to Sophie, a younger woman, and it's also an arranged marriage. Um, Octavian, the younger lover, um, quickly disguises himself as a girl um, just because he doesn't want to be found in the Marshalin's bed. Um, and uh, basically the baron then um, sort of, you know, says, oh, how pretty she is, um, thinking that it's like a, you know, a servant of the Marshalin. Um, so then the baron, so the Marshalin then says, oh, you're getting married. You need a, a rose bear or a Rosenkavagia. And the um, the baron then says, oh, great. Like, who do you suggest? And... Basically, she says, oh, she recommends Octavian, um, her younger lover who is there in the room, but in disguise. So anyway, next next we are with the Baron and his young um, fiance Sophie, in this sort of arranged marriage and Octavian comes in bearing the rose, which is this traditional thing that happens. Um, and meanwhile, they, they sort of both fall in love um, as Octavian and Sophie fall in love as he's giving the rose, um, but basically, they, there's like a big quarrel, the Baron gets hurt in a duel, and, and Sophie and Octavian want to sort of be together, but she's in this arranged marriage with the Baron. And anyway, so then the next act, there's a, they're in a shabby inn, um, the Baron is tricked, and he's sort of found out to be with another woman who is actually Octavian in disguise. Um, the Marshalin from the beginning comes in, um, and she knows now that Sophie and Octavian, her younger lover, are also in love. And she basically says, um, "You know, it's okay, Octavian. We, ha- we had our we had our relationship. Go off with your with Sophie, your young lover, who's your age." And she kind of she sends them away with her blessing, basically. And then we're left with Sophie and Octavian at the end together. Um, and so the idea of the, the Habsburg Empire being also essentially embodied in the Marshallin, this kind of this 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 wealth um, and this influence. But but fading and getting older and essentially saying it's okay to to go into a new era to be with your younger lover. Um, So the stage sets um, appeared like um, you know uh, turn of the century you know around 1900 Vienna um, and sort of a a palace in the Habsburg Empire and we actually see paintings on the walls with the the last emperor of the Habsburg Empire and stuff. Um, So yeah, I hope that kind of (laughs) clarifies a bit quickly. Um, But. Actually, I should say one more thing. At the, <laughs> the very, very end of the opera, um, Robert Carson does this amazing thing where, you know, right before this opera premiered was essentially the start of World War I. And and that was the, the actual end of the Habsburg Empire. Um, and so normally in the opera we see in this Baroque or, you know, late Baroque setting um, of the 18th century, we see the last, the two young lovers, Sophie and Octavian at the end sort of, you know, embracing in this beautiful palace. Um, And what Robert Carson did is he actually has the set, the walls kind of quickly move away and fade away and sort of roll into the background. And we see these soldiers from World War I um, crawling onto the stage around them as these two lovers are embracing. So we get this this idea of this, this oncoming war and conflict and the world will never be the same again. You know, World War One changed um, Europe in 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 ways that you know had never been. You know, basically all Europe changed immensely at once. You know, empires fell and and um, and new ways of thinking emerged. So that was sort of the really powerful layer that Robert Carson brought into the opera was
0: for us to see that. So why are you interested in moving? On or away yeah, from um, traditional so design?
1: Essentially, I think, um, as I mentioned in these, mostly in these three operas, um, I think these new layers of meaning that we can find in works, especially in the years that, you know, from when they first premiered to now, many things have happened. Um, and I think overlaying it with this, this extra layer or lens or trying to do that, I think is worth it if we uncover things, um, you know just to go back to the last idea um, in the Rosenkavalier, you know, Strauss never um, intended for the opera to be, to reflect the time in which, well, he, in some ways he did, but, uh, you know, he never quite, visually, he never intended it to reflect the time in which he was writing, um, in terms of the setting. So I think it's, it's worth it for us to try to examine these operas in new ways, especially these classics that many people, um, many people know or getting, accustomed to and seeing, um, because these new meetings and new ideas that we can get from them when we rethink them, I think, are worth it. Um, and, and also, so many of these operas, too, have, you know, blatant racism and sexism and, um, you know, just sometimes just awful, awful situations that, um, you know, we can h- actually hold these operas accountable. And sometimes bringing out some of those awful aspects of them makes us think a little deeper about what was what was going on at the time that they were written in. And and, um, unfortunately, how some of those ideas are still in our society now. Um, So, Yeah.
0: (laughs) Where do you draw the line between respecting the original source text and <laughs> a good, a the artist's question. reinterpretation?
1: Um, I think, I mean, I've, I've definitely seen some of these productions, like, you know, this one that I mentioned earlier of Don Giovanni, that, that um, they kind of, they seem to have um, this desire to um, do something new just for the sake of doing something new, um, this kind of shock value just for the sake of it. And, you know, well, you might, you know, suddenly you might go see a production and say, oh, you know, oh my God, it's, it's Love, I'm on the moon. Um, but if it's, if it's only that shock and not some <laughs> sort of, you know, deeper understanding um, that we're getting of the opera, I think that's, then it's not worth it. Um, you know, as I said, <laughs> to use the analogy of like, you know, a, a blue room. I mean, if, if, if there's not really any, um you know, if if the if the intention of the designer was just to make a blue room, because that's not what he or she thinks the audience would expect, then that's you know that's not worth it. <laughs> um, but if you're using this idea of blue as somehow reflecting melancholy or something, then it might you know it might be reflective of the opera, but it's not a specific enough example.
0: <laughs> so, have you have you designed? Something um, very in in your own personal portfolio or work. Have you designed something that's different from a traditional <laughs> yeah, um, staging or I, setting I, I, of an yeah, opera? I
1: always try to to have an approach of of rethinking <laughs> operas, um, but there is definitely one production. It, it was only a, a paper project, so I did it, um, you know, in in school, but um, it never was produced as a real opera. Um, but I did a production or designed a production of Tristan and Isolde, which is a famous opera by Richard Wagner, um, based on the sort of old legend of Tristan and Isolde that goes back to medieval times. Um, but I I tried to set the opera in an abandoned gas station in the middle of the desert, sort of like secluded from everything. Um, and the reason why I did that, I mean, some of the clues that I took from the libretto that, you know, it wasn't just a completely, you know, Not, I didn't do it for the sake of just doing something different. Um, Yeah, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) Or you just
0: so happened to be in a gas station Um, at the time you were thinking. No, so
1: I, I mean, in in the opening act, the um, you know, they're on a ship in the ocean, and I imagine this kind of endless horizon. And my parallel to that was sort of being in the desert and looking out and seeing this endless horizon. And you know, if you were to escape off um, the side of a ship. You know they were basically taking um taking is old tristan's um sort of recruited to take to he's told to go get Isolde and bring her back so she's kind of ca- she's captive um so i thought you know someone jumping off the side of a boat would have no less chance of surviving than someone just wandering out into the desert so the idea was this kind of being stuck at this this abandoned gas station and the reason mm-hmm. why it would be abandoned um was just that um you know, there's no chance of of calling out or escape or anyone else there that can help them. Um, but there are other moments, like for example, Isolde's um mother calls and it's a, a call sort of like almost she she ref Isold references her in the in the words and the singing. Um and I imagined that to be kind of almost like this abandoned phone booth <laughs> um coming in, you know, almost like You know, there's no chance of anyone calling, but maybe it's this this sort of like mythical voice of her mother coming in um, through through that. And then, um, you know, I imagined as Azul's coming in captive, there's this kind of, you know, she's 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 brought in this car that's maybe broken down or something. So there's there's no chance of escape. Um, But, yeah, I can get, you know, go on into the details for 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 hours. But that was that sort of the basic the basic premise of it.
0: So. Finally, Alex, I wanted to ask you about through, through the lens of a, yeah. a stage designer, um, what do you think opera is? I
1: mean, to, yeah, to me, and, and as a designer, I think opera is really this, this audio visual, sort of all encompassing experience um, that allows us to examine our own culture and society. You know, that's a, that's a big, you know, there's a lot in there. But, um, you know, I think we, we go to the opera to be um, entertained. Um, but also to, to reflect on ourselves and, and, you know, the human condition and, and our world. So anything that allows us to do that, um, through, through the music, the words, the singing, the, the, the visuals, um, I think anything that can really allow us to, to reflect on, on who we are as people, um, you know, that, that to me is, is opera and and the hype, the, the main point of opera.
0: Do you think opera needs to be reinterpreted? or can we um, just keep I think doing it traditionally you know, I
1: mean, so many of the, the classic repertoire um you know people love seeing it in its in its traditional you know designs um and seeing it in the traditional ways but I think um to continue really having a critical eye and, and looking at our society I think it, it does it does need a little bit of reinterpretation um especially as I said you know many things have happened since these operas were first written the world is is not the same place so um i think any any reflection on that um through any interpretation you know and you know great and small um i think is is valuable
0: that was my interview with alex mccargar He's a scenic designer with a background in architecture with degrees from the Rhode Island school of design, and he holds an MFA in stage design from the Yale school of drama to learn more about Alex. He's got a website. You can check him out at alexandermccargar.com and there you can see his design portfolio and photos from productions. He's worked on Alex is originally from Andover, Massachusetts, but now he's based in Vienna, Austria. Thank you for listening and learning with me on What is Opera Anyway, the podcast. This was actually my last episode with the podcast and the end of this season. But don't worry, WIOA will be back in the fall with a new season of the podcast. I had a great time talking with our guests and learning from them about the many different subjects surrounding opera. I want to thank our podcast team, Jeremy, Noah, and Francesca for putting this season together. And I especially want to thank you, the listeners who have tuned in to listen to this podcast. I hope you learned more about opera as much as I have. So have a great summer and live easy. What is Opera Anyway? is a 501c3 nonprofit organization designed to bring a comprehensive opera education program directly to you, to your computer screen, to your headphones and to the classroom. Through diverse programming, participants will learn many ways to answer the question, what is opera anyway? Our podcast is supported in part by a grant from the Andover Cultural Council, a local agency, which is supported by the Mass Cultural Council, a state agency. To support WIOA or to learn more about our other programs, you can check out our website at whatisoperaanyway.org. You can sponsor a student lesson or an episode of the podcast, but we welcome donations of any size. And of course, because we're a nonprofit, all your donations are tax deductible. You can also help us by spreading the word about our organization and what we do. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for merchandise that we have on sale. If you'd like to be a guest on the podcast, or if you have a question about opera, you can contact us and subscribe to the WIOA newsletter so you can receive the latest news about the organization, special events, and when the next season of the podcast will be available. The composer of our overture is Reagan Castile. You can hear more of her work at ReganCastile.com. Our podcast logo was designed by Francesca Leonetta and Hannah Stokes. Our social media guru is Vina Akamamakia. Our producers, technical directors, and editors are Jeremy Lopez, Noah Sesling, and our executive producer is Francesca Leonetta. I'm Josh Lau, thank you so much for listening. I still have so much more to learn about opera. And maybe you do too, because what is opera anyway?